Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, January 2nd episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have highlighted over 140 poets in 17 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Keegan Wheat. Hi, Keegan. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, excited to do this. I'm really excited. Good, good. Me too. Me too. So you brought with you your poem for being lived with. Before we get into yes. that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm an editor, the poetry editor at Defunct Magazine, community-based Houston, Texas, mm-hmm. online mag. We publish quarterly, we publish kind of anything, mm-hmm. like we're even doing some music stuff as well, and uh, mm-hmm. we also publish an anthology nice. yearly, and I just recently graduated from UH mm-hmm. as a undergrad in the creative writing department there, mm-hmm. and I'm in the, <laughs> the midst of grad applications, which are so fun, um, <laughs> Uh, and I guess most importantly, I'm a poet. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you applying to? Oh, I applied to like 13 places. Oh, wow. Man. Yeah. I had my application fees covered, so I felt like I should do that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I just applied all over. Nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, since uh, this episode is most likely going to come out after you get your news, do you want to reveal to us where you really want to go? I think I'm really maybe interested in Rutgers Newark. Oh. They seem to be a little bit interested in me, but mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm very undecided. Okay. Um, oddly, I'm sort of considering two career paths of going to grad school are going to mortuary school, so okay. who knows? <laughs> I guess you can't do both, huh? Yeah, uh, it would be quite hard to do both. <laughs> yeah, right. I know I should be asking you about poetry, but you brought up mortuary school, so we have to go right. down that tangent. What made you become interested in mortuary school? Um... I was that weird, I think, goth kid from all of my life that was just kind of more morbid than most. Mm. Um, But the thing that I really love about it now, knowing more about it, is the idea of being able to truly help people in their sort of, like, grieving process. Mm. Um, So that's what I really am most interested in, besides the weird science of embalming and all those kinds of things. Mm Okay, okay. Um, Now, let's tie that awkwardly to your poetry. Were you, (laughs) did you write gothy poetry as well when you started writing poetry? Um, Oddly, I think I didn't, um, because I was trying to sort of like um, let go of the idea of mortuary school or mortuary sciences because I didn't know that you could just get a degree in that I thought you had to go to med school and I was like I can't do that Mm. (laughs) um so when I first started writing poetry I didn't write so much about morbid or goth things I Mm. mostly stuck to trans identity Mm. okay okay and do you remember when you wrote your first poem oh probably my first first or second year in undergrad, actually. Oh, wow. I started writing songs first. Okay. And then when I got to college, 
I was like, oh, wait, poetry is actually pretty cool, too, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started writing poetry, and um, I took a class, like the intro to creative writing class, and that's when I wrote my first poetry that I believed was poetry. Because mm-hmm. I had a really great instructor who was like, you need a you need to believe in what you do. Like, you're a poet. You can do whatever you can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you said mostly you started writing about trans uh, identity. And so yeah. I, was your first poem also about that? Uh, if I can remember my first poem, I think it was. Mm-hmm. I think it was this weird epistolary kind of poem where I wrote a poem to myself Mm. my past self at like the beginning of transition Mm. trying to like give my pre-transition self advice of like how to sort of move through this really challenging confusing kind of realization Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) this part of your identity was it something that you had known some time ago when is the earliest that you had known that you were not necessarily what you were born uh, as gender-wise? I actually was um, a more late kind of cover mm-hmm. to trans identity. I kind of came out to myself and all the people around me during undergraduate as well, so just a few years ago, really. Okay. So I had this kind of whirlwind experience of transition and also starting poetry kind of at the same time, mm-hmm. which I think is part of the reason why my poetry always comes back to trans identity, because it sort of bloomed as I was also just starting to transition. Right. So they feel sort of inherently linked in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's really interesting. I think it's almost as if uh, you've entirely became a new person, like adapting yeah. new behavior as well, right, it seems. Um, yeah. Since um, the poem you brought with you also deals in a similar topic, and it felt kind of newish uh, in terms of what it describes, right? If you don't mind reading it for us, then we can talk about it. Yeah, for sure. For being with Lit. When he calls out Felicia an old name I pulled away from my body, I can only see the places that grew too much or not at all. When I hear Felicia, I hear him saying, We're heterosexual couple, but still queer. I hear, of course, you're a lesbian. You and I sit in a creaky chair through a lecture on some ancient text. The lecturer gets worked up about societal importance of naming a baby. He starts leaving off in the book. He claims that names make a person, forgetting myocardium or atrium. You sit in this chair with your name. Our mom chose when she only saw you. Thank you. So, um, as I said, it felt like you were describing in this poem here a time when it's not like when you first transition or when you first realize it, is that when people were still or getting used to the new you. I don't know if that interpretation is correct. Yeah, it, it is sort of about the interstitial time of sort of finding a new name. Mm-hmm. Because when I first started considering transitioning, there was a very long time when I just didn't go by a name with like my very close friend. They would just be like, hey, you, oh. <laughs> rather than call me anything at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's a very kind of odd experience that I was trying to get across by being in between of wanting a new name and not really having it or knowing how to get it really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's really interesting because I don't think just reading the poem on its own, I mean, there is absolutely this emphasis on naming what's in the name, sort of that old Shakespearean line, uh, Romeo and Juliet line, right? But I, I didn't realize that it was actually describing the moment when you were kind of trying to figure out what your new identity or at least the label of your new identity would be 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's sort of like a, an amalgamation of moments mm-hmm. where it's just kind of that, like, a, it's not one sort of like, oh, well, now I need a new name. It's like a bunch of different times where I felt just kind of weird. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> maybe I should, <laughs> maybe I should think about this more, this whole name thing. Do you feel a sense of freedom in being able to choose your own name? Well, to be completely honest, I didn't entirely choose my name, my, my even my new name. Mm-hmm. I was really lucky in that I got help from my mom, who was really gracious and really took the time to, like, like I wrote out a list of possibilities. She was like, nah, that one sucks. Nah, this one, like. Mm-hmm. That one isn't that great. <laughs> that one doesn't fit you. So I think in a way, the freedom part to me wasn't important as how incredible it was that my mom like, actually went with me and was like, hey, I will help with this, even though it's still really new and still sort of like she was still processing it and everything. Mm-hmm. But she still decided to like help me with that. So that was the part that I really liked the most. Right, right. Yeah, that is really sweet. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really like a rebirthing process. Yeah, yeah, it was it was in a way and I even sort of cuz my mom did a naming pattern for both me and my brother mm-hmm. of uh having a sort of more Scots-Irish name and a more like Latino name. Mm. And um I even sort of like tried to keep that pattern so mm. it would sort of still align with like like, I wasn't just saying, hey, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I hate <laughs> this name and, like, this sucks. I was like, I just don't want this association, but the name, mm-hmm. and, like, that is all cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not in this particular poem, but in uh, one of your other poems that you sent, you had talked about how even though she was still getting used to the new you, Right, she was also trying to fulfill sort of that mom role by trying to get your grandmother to be acc- accustomed to your your new identity as well. Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of trans media, rightly so, because it is a very serious thing we we should talk about of like parents not having a particularly positive reaction mm-hmm. to transition. But I also think like. I personally think for, like, trans kids out there who might read this, like, having a representation that their parents might actually be super chill and, like, very helpful and kind, mm-hmm. I think is useful. Yeah. Because um, yeah. it's a possibility that is nice to see, I think, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do feel like there is a lot of representation of, of the other kind, which is, you know, bring obviously bring a very important issue to the fore at the same time it could also be very intimidating for those who want to come out but um, don't want to quote unquote lose their families in the process right yeah exactly exactly in terms of this poem I, I wasn't sure when you said when he calls out Felicia, I don't know who the he was or if it was the lecturer or somebody else entirely different. That he is actually uh, one of my friends. Mm. Both of the stanzas are sort of almost separated in time, which I don't think is very clear, mm. but I kind of like its vague time reference because for me, transition was very like, a wibbly wobbly moment of time that didn't feel real so yeah it's just referencing a friend like I think it's trying to get across how often you are called a name without even really realizing it until you have to realize it and mm. it's uncomfortable <laughs> yeah I thought it was interesting like the turn because the first stanza it was not very clear that who the you was, I mean, the first stanza didn't even have you, but you were talking with somebody. Um, yeah. And I don't know if if you're addressing the same person in the first and the second stanza. Interesting. Yeah, well, the way that I sort of envision it in my mind 
is that the first stanza is basically just addressing all these weird moments that people have. <clears throat> like when people say things like, oh, of course, you're a lesbian. Like, oh, you look a little butch. You're a lesbian. <clears throat> mm-hmm. The second stanza is sort of like almost more intensely focuses on a particular moment of like having the self and this self that's sort of an object Mm -hmm. the you in this case that people recognize that being like the Felicia Mm -hmm. like really putting that into a moment and how it works out internally of like thinking about all the sort of ways people put a lot of pressure and a lot of importance on a name right yeah there are name books and everything that you can yeah (laughs) there's so many name books (laughs) (laughs) and depends on the period too you can almost tell when a person was born by especially if they have a popular name like Brittany for instance (laughs) you can have you have an idea when they were born Um, yeah or if they have a very odd name you're just like your parents what were they doing (laughs) yeah yeah, Um, yeah that's always fun yeah I mean, names do connotate a lot of uh, importance that parents put into. And it also is sort of uh, depend, depending on the culture as well. Right? Certain people have uh, put a lot of expectations, in, invest in that, that expectation of their children within the name itself. Like, right. like for, for instance, one of the poets I, I interviewed, their name is Vida de Jesus. Mm-hmm. Which is a lot of expectation, right? <laughs> yeah, it is <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's it's interesting that you know when I always thought when you get to pick your own name, especially if you're doing it as a young adult, as you were uh, while transitioning, even though it's still a new identity is just difficult. Period. At the same time, yeah. having yeah. that agency in some ways, although it's interesting. And I wonder, in picking your name, what you were investing in it as well. Right, yeah. Oddly, I'm still almost a little bit, I think, in the process of picking my name because I haven't really chosen a, a middle name. Mm. So I'm still sort of like trying to figure out what what I really want to invest in it, what I really want to align myself with. Mm-hmm. Um, if I want to name myself after some character I really like, or poet, or align more closely with my family. It sort of is a little bit up in the air still. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's a really odd decision to make. It just feels kind of weird, but there is a sort of like funny sort of joy in it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the questions I get a lot it's like, oh, you know, why'd you pick Keegan? And to me, that question is hilarious because I just am like, I, I don't know. Because <laughs> why'd your parent pick John? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just think it's like a very like, it's a very weird experience. But also, yeah, it has these moments of just really fun investment. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, fascinating when when we have that, that choice, right? But it's not like it's out of reach for the rest of the world. Anybody could go and change your name. It's just right. a pain in the butt because, you know, you have to, depending on how long you've been alive, you have to change a whole bunch of records. Right, um, yeah. So we, we do have that within our reach. At the same time, it's like because there's so much uh, time investment uh, that comes with it, that, that burden. You always want to sort of be a bit careful, right, uh, in, in what you choose and whether you want to hear that associated with you wherever you go. Right. Yeah, that is a weird thing to think about when you are choosing names, just like, oh, do am I going to respond to this? Am I going <laughs> to recognize this name as, as me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this, the, the, when you talked about in the second stanza, when you break out the you and the you, the two uh, sort of, uh-huh. when you are 
splitting yourself into two, basically, and you're talking with yourself in, in some ways. Was that a conscious choice that you made in going into the second stanza? Yeah, it was a conscious choice. It, honestly, it was so conscious that I had to workshop it a million times for people to be able to read it correctly. Mm-hmm. Because I was, when, I, when I was first trying it, it never made any sense to anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was conscious because I was trying to, to make the point of how, for me, for my experience of like trans identity, it is felt like when people recognize the Felicia of me or like see me as a woman mm-hmm. it feels like they're seeing me like not as a person or not as like myself mm-hmm. but just as a visible object instead of like talking to me as a person and getting to know that I am not a woman <laughs> I don't identify that way mm. um so it felt like I was using the you because it it is the sort of I want to say in grammar it is the more object kind of person mm-hmm. rather than the I, which is more of the like doer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think <laughs> my grammar is a little rusty sometimes. <laughs> no worries, no worries. I we you know I'm definitely not one to know the difference, <laughs> really. <laughs> And especially, you know, now with contemporary writing, there are people who write in the second person uh, subject now, right? Like uh, Ocean Wong, I think, is very uh, contemporary and uh, well-known form. Uh That's what they wrote in, I think. Uh, And I, I thought when you were saying that when people call you Felicia... It feels to you more like they're addressing an object. Is that because, or maybe it's both, that women in many ways in today's society are seen, are being objectified still a lot? Uh, Or is it because you don't identify that way as a woman? So when people still kind of couch you in those gender terms that you feel like, you, uh, as you are a full person, are not being seen. The way that I sort of initially was thinking about it definitely more aligned with the idea that they just weren't seeing me as myself, like my full personhood. Mm -hmm. But I do think the reading of women being more objectified, I think it works because there are still times where I I weirdly experience like transphobia and misogyny in a different way than trans women do, mm. for sure. Um, but I experience it in the way of people being misogynistic and also then just, like, misgendering me because they're assuming I'm a woman. Mm. And that's a very weird space to be in. Mm. But I, I do also see the way that you could you could read it as if you're being seen as a woman, you're being objectified because women so often are. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really interesting reading. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure which one or both, or because there there are just so many different ways of approaching that concept, right, of, of being objectified. Um, and in some ways, it's very similar as well, right, because uh, women being objectified is basically women not being seen as who they are as, as an entire person, um, individual right. person. So. Right, yeah. And in terms of you writing this poem, was there a particular incident that led you to write it? I mean, all of the sort of incidents that happen in the poem, like the the things that are in italics, the quotes, mm-hmm. are like actual things that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of just an amalgamation of a bunch of different incidents that were like, hey, wow, naming kind of sucks sometimes. <laughs> If you sort of don't feel comfortable with your name, it feels really constant, um, mm. and it feels really important. Because mm. I I was in a lecture a while ago where, where a lecturer was talking about I think they were talking about the Odyssey of like how important naming babies was, and I was like, what's happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> this, this feels too relevant to my personal life. Let's back <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. It sort of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before we started the recording, right? The fact that something you are focusing now um, will put a spotlight on everything everybody else is saying that is relevant to that particular subject. Yeah, it feels like sometimes when you're thinking about something so intensely, just every single thing is related to it, no matter <laughs> if it actually is or if you're just kind of forcing it in your brain. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting that you decided to bring these, um, you know, especially myocardium, the the medical terminology into it. And I was uh, wondering why you decided to use that when most of your poem doesn't really go into any kind of uh, medical or technical language. Yeah, I... <laughs> Because I have a congenital heart condition, mm. I think medical terminology, especially cardiology terminology, mm. is much more just in my general vocabulary than mm. for most people. Mm. So for me, using atrium or myocardium is kind of just not super normal. I don't say it every day, but <laughs> but I think it's more of an average word than most people. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, I think a lot of medical terms kind of just slip in and out of my poetry just because it feels way more casual to me mm. to use than mm. I think a lot of people might see it as. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think for people who are not uh, in your situation or familiar with your situation, when they suddenly see you know, a term that they more associate with the medical field, um, not so much atrium. You know, atrium is um, used right. in everyday uh, language as well. Actually, that brings me to ask you, did you mean for myocardium and atrium to be used together, uh, having that same medical connotation? Or did you just um, want to have a, an internal rhyme? I meant it in in the more medical terminology atrium, mm. um, and I hadn't I hadn't realized the more common use mm-hmm. until someone else read it and was like, "What are you talking about atrium?" And I was like, "Oh, right, <laughs> I forget." <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I meant it in the medical use, but then it isn't always used that way. So, mm-hmm. oops. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. I think um, I always like it when writers challenge us. And, you know, once in a while, especially when the circumstances are right, and it's, you know, it doesn't throw people out of the poem, the rhythm of it, to give us uh, words that we don't necessarily aren't familiar with in everyday language. Um, so atrium is just like the chamber of the heart, right? Yeah, it is. And I, I, I did end up really liking this sort of weird duality of that word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's it's almost as if you're in uh, encasing or housing people within that particular space as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I really uh, enjoy that. And I did have to... Um, look up myocardium I'm like I'm familiar with the term but I don't I didn't really know exactly what it was referring to so can you remind us as well it's just like the muscle in the heart I believe like that tissue okay okay I think I just like the sound of it and Mm -hmm. I also think it it fits in the way that I'm trying to say like while a name can carry sort of societal relevance there's a lot more to a person in the physicality, but also just like in the heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the heart in itself, it's even though ironically you're using very physical terms in talking about the heart, the very technical terms, talking about the physical heart. But when we speak of heart in everyday parlance, and even especially in poetry, but everyday parlance as well, the heart is not the actual heart. Right. Exactly, yeah. Um, I I really like sort of blending that line, at least a little bit, or blurring it, 
to be like, oh, well, I am literally talking about the heart, but I'm also talking about like the individual as as their person. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I really enjoy that, and I think it's. I mean, it's it's to both, right? The idea of having the old self and being pulled into old situations because of the old identity or a reference to the old identity, but also trying to live with a new identity and sort of, you know, adjusting to the duality uh, of it that uh, I send you my poem, which is uh, Keep in Shape. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about your poem? Yeah, uh, uh, I'm going to read it, and then we can talk about it, and we can talk about both poems uh, together. Awesome. It's called Keep in Shape. Sometimes I let her speak my words, invest another meaning from a different tongue. The audience detects a variance, bouncing between their projection and my pretensions, hiding sentiments I dare not express. An image has its form to protect against distortions, transformation, fluctuations perturb the steady facade. Put on for protection from the uncouth mob at the ready to beat you into the shape of their imagination. The world is easier lived in the head. Yeah, if I may, can I start with just a comment? Sure, sure. Um, I really like this poem for a, a lot of reasons, but just you reading it, I noticed the really distinct sort of sonic change in beat. It really stands out, mm. and I really, really appreciate that for the the meaning of the poem, but also the sonic kind of emphasize it. Mm. I really like that. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> But yeah, when you bring up this poem, the other thing, um, just as you were saying about about my poem, the getting used to the duality, this poem really, I feel like, takes a different look mm-hmm. at that same idea of getting used to having a duality within yourself to make sure you're, in, in your case, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but I think it's like to, to make sure you're protected to sort of keep yourself safe. Mm-hmm. And in, in my poem, it's more about just the world sort of enforcing a duality upon you. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad that came across because I, yeah. I've i never actually shown this poem, I don't think, to anyone. It's special. Oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, I... You know, I I always pick my poems in reaction for these interviews in reaction to other people's poems. I mean, even in readings, you know, when I go to open mics and stuff, somebody will read a poem. And I'm like, oh, that reminds me of this poem. So. That's yeah, that's amazing. I I'm really astounded by that. It's so impressive to me. <laughs> Thank you. And I think you know, it's it's because of your poem that that made me think of this poem because. I think oftentimes uh, we live in a world where we're quite um, isolated in some ways, even if, you know, we weren't living in the, this chaos that we are living in now. Um, right. And a lot of times we feel like people are so different from us that we cannot relate to them in any sort of way. But, you know, in doing this podcast, uh, these interviews, and also just going to open mics and listening to other poets speak about their lives and their experiences, I feel like, Oftentimes, something that they would say would remind me of something that I have experienced and written myself, even if it's not entirely out of the same kind of subject matter. The feelings that are invoked are still very similar. And yeah, that's just such a like wonderful sentiment. I love that. Thank you. When I wrote this poem, I honestly, even after I written it, this was written some time ago. I, I never thought that I would be reading it in this sort of context, not only because I'd written it prior to starting the podcast, but also just because this is something, this particular poem, I thought I was going to, it was written for myself and it was never going to see the light of day. That's interesting. By that, do you mean it was a poem you wrote for yourself? Like, 
I just need this and I don't want to share it with anyone? Or do you mean like, I don't know if this is, because I know that I have some bombs and I'm like, I wrote that. We don't need to talk about it. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> I'm just curious what you mean by that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like it's something that when it happened, when I felt this poem come on, I just thought, yeah, I need to write this down. But it was not something where I'm like, oh, I can't wait to share it with people. It was just like, yeah, I wrote it. I just needed to say this. And in a medium that's not within within my head, you know, so, mm-hmm. so an outside medium where I'm putting digital ink on digital paper, you know. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I think I have some poems like that, too, that I just was like, I'm going to say this. Who knows where it's going? I said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was actually surprised when your poem made me think of this poem. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to send out this poem. And there was, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, huh, I did not think this would happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you, I mean, you sound sort of into it. And I'm just kind of wondering, was this a poem? I guess I just love talking about the poems that, like, we don't feel like we want to share. And I'm wondering, like, this is a poem that you just didn't think would come up, but, like, you want to share. Like, you're, you're excited about this poem, I guess, is my question. I think, you know, I'm sure you felt this as well. It's like looking back in your archives of poems, right? And something that you never think you would share and and you wrote it for yourself and maybe you didn't even think it was any good at the time. And then looking back, you're like, actually, this is a good poem. Yeah, I'm going to let it out, air it out or something. It definitely denotes a moment in my life where I felt like I became another person. And this other person can say certain things that my old self cannot say. And in that there is safety. And it also talk about, alludes to, even though obviously I'm not a celebrity, but it alludes to that, the dichotomy between public and private persona. Yeah, that was another point that I really liked. I like the idea of audience. Like that's such a, such a good word because it really brings out public space so well and I was wondering if this is both about a private space and a public space or more sort of thinking internally about public space as well yeah I do think about public space because again at this time the idea of the podcast was not anything in my head in fact if I had gone back in time and told myself, oh, in a few months, you're going to have a podcast. (laughs) I don't think this me who wrote this poem would have believed it because I I was just at such a different moment in my life. At the same time, one of the reasons I never really saw uh, public attention was because of the fact that I'm a person who values her own space and privacy. And the freedom that comes with uh, anonymity in some ways. Yeah, I, I do really like that because within the body of the poem, there aren't many identifying sort of things. Like you wouldn't learn too much about who this person is besides mm-hmm. their ideas of, about like public and private space. You wouldn't really learn like any identities really. And I was really fascinated by that because it's about speaking, you know. Um, Did you do that sort of purposefully or were you thinking about how maybe this speaker would retain any sort of identifying information and just keep it to herself? I think because the fact that I really value my privacy so much, for many reasons, that it is such an integral part of my own identity that it can't help but seep through. But especially in this moment when I'm like, well, I'm going to take on this persona, uh, partly because of the privacy issue and partly because of safety issues. Um, 
so I think it makes sense that it seeped through. I don't know how purposefully I was because I'm not. I imagine there must be an element of that because I, I was and I still am quite traumatized by certain things that happened in my life, and at that time I was closer to when the incidents happened. So um, I think I felt it even more viscerally then as I do now. Yeah, that makes sense, especially writing, even if it's not about something, it's just sort of in your mind, an event Mm -hmm. that is particularly difficult. Writing about that close to its occurrence is always very, like, difficult, and it feels a lot less purposeful, Mm -hmm. like uh, consciously purposeful, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult, right? As a writer, especially if you're writing autobiographically, even in short form writing like poetry, um, it's still difficult to. I mean, we find the balance, obviously, in the works that we produce. At the same time, it's just like, eh. <laughs> right? Yeah, I do think there are poems where I'm better at finding that balance, like because I. I think there are poems where I've written very close to something happening mm. and I look back on it and I'm like not particularly upset with how much I kind of gave away of myself, mm. but am sort of shocked sometimes by how much just seeps into the poem without me even realizing it. Mm. Like if you've had an experience I am always surprised by, but kind of love in a weird way. Mm. is when someone else reads my work and they ask, like, oh, is X in this poem? Mm. And you're just like, wait, X? I didn't write that. No way. And then they point it out in all the places to you and you're just sitting there like, oh, I guess I did write that. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that happens with me as well, especially when I'm feeling very strong emotions that no matter how hard I try to hide certain things, that it comes out no matter, yeah. It's just like, oh yeah, I was writing about this person or this incident. <laughs> right, yeah. I think sometimes I do it very obviously, like if I write in the, like a, a letter poem, like, oh, their name is literally at the top. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing to you. But other times, it's just this, like, one modifier. And I'm just like, oh, okay, Keegan, what were you thinking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, in many ways, right, poetry, especially autobiographical poetry, becomes almost like diary entries. Yeah, yeah. Very strange diary entries, but yeah. <laughs> it's sort of coded. It's sort of like coded. <laughs> yeah, just some, you know, semi to non-semi coded diary. <laughs> That's art. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's only coded to us. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I love that. I love that. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just wonder um if you know like when you were reading my poem is some of the sentiments especially in terms of safety is something that that you felt was applicable to your personal experience though you don't reference the safety so much as more like um being constrained i feel like in your poem so i I wonder if reading my poem it felt sorry if i trigger your sense of Lack of safety. Oh, no, yeah. I think for the poem that I brought for being lived with, I'm not really sure that I touch on the safety aspect because I was so sort of specifically focused on wanting a name. Mm -hmm. But there are other poems, I think, that more so, or or poems of mine that more so resonate with that safety aspect. Mm. And I thought the way that you did it is really, I don't know, for me, it's very, like, deaf the way you do it because it sort of creeps in and then it hits you all at once almost. Mm. Because at least for me, the first line even of sometimes I let her 
is very, very much like frightening in a way. Like it mm-hmm. evokes in me this sense of of danger because if you only sometimes allow someone to speak, there is a very good reason that's not happening. Mm-hmm. I think for 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 the majority of, of, of occasions. Mm-hmm. So I I really love the way you sort of creep into this danger. Mm-hmm. Um, because it even gets a little bit more pronounced of I dare not. And then even more to um, uncouth mob. And mm-hmm. then even more to the direct ready to beat you. Mm-hmm. It's just really, really fantastic the way it's sort of just slips into real serious immediate danger. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for pointing out these words. It's so interesting when a, a reader will see, will be much more sensitive than uh, some of the dangers that, you know, the author may feel, but because they feel it all the time, they are not necessarily as sensitive to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's, there have definitely been times when someone's reading one of my poems and they're like, "There's a lot of violence in this poem," and I'm just like, "No, no, no! It's, it's about a house. It's not about a danger. No." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they just they pick it up because you're you're right. Like the way that you said, you're so used to it that you just kind of slip past it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was, uh, and, and when you're pointing those words out, I'm like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Oh, my God, how did I miss those elements, right? Um, and 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 it's not like I didn't feel the fear. I definitely felt it. And it was very present. It still is present. Um, at the same time, like I said, I think we're just desensitized to it because what else are we going to do? Like cry ourselves through the day every day, you know? Right, exactly. Like you just kind of have to keep on living. It's just necessary. Um, The other really interesting, I mean, honestly, I'm really interested by this whole poem, but another line I really loved was the moment that you shift into an image has its form, and particularly the word it's, because it it really hits this back to the sort of objectification kind of standpoint. Mm-hmm. It, like the speaker becomes, at least in relation to an object, it's it's no longer got through the the speaker no longer has a a will. And I just think that was like so small and so great of a way to show like that the way you can so easily slip into not having like free will I think yeah yeah thank you and and I think it is going back to that public private persona right and I think especially the second half of the poem I go into more about you know the more images that are more familiar with everyone is the celebrity um, Uh image it's like, how much is that real? How much is feeding red meat to the, you know, paparazzi kind of. Um, right. And, you know, how depersonalized those um, public persona must seem to the people who are living with it, even though obviously they crave that attention at the same time. Um, yeah. You know, part of them just becomes objectified. Right. It's like they crave the the direct attention, adoration, even of of these people, but but completely lose the the personal connection. Right. So, to me, I kind of always wonder about that because, and I'm like, are you getting that that attention though? Hmm. Yeah, I I also wonder is like exactly what do you want? Um, again, it, it's sort of like, uh, it's sort of like drug use, right? I, I don't know. Um, do people use drugs because they feel good it, because the drugs or whatever, whatever they're addicted to makes them feel good. But in, er, invariably it's, 
the dosage always needs to be dialed up because because it's not really giving them exactly what they need or the downside is so heavy that it doesn't the positives become less and less positive um, or in comparison to the negative so I'm I'm that you know being objectified when people see you as the image rather than the real you um, but in this particular poem uh, my poem that you know sometimes the image is projected on purpose uh, as a protection yeah yeah I don't know it's just so I don't know having that that image protection to me is like I don't know the way that you sort of implement it in this poem it's so interesting and so like I think that you you take a stab at at that idea of like what is gotten out of it in this poem for different sort of reasons for this is protection but but I still think like you you almost to me hearing you speak about that it almost seems like you are in some way answering a version of that question with this poem which is really interesting to me mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also wonder because I'm I'm not in the body of a trans person. My question um, has always been: Is there some sort of protection that is sought in transitioning? Wow. Well, I think I can kind of just answer for me because for most, for the most part, I think a lot of trans people's reasons for transition vary. Yeah. But for me, I, I mean. I think it's less protection of a from a danger necessarily or from external things mm. and more protection of my own self of just protecting how I feel kind of day to day because when it gets to a certain point for me after coming out to myself it got to a certain point where if I didn't transition I just wouldn't have been happy like mm probably at all it just it doesn't really hit you how often you're gendered day to day until you only think about it and then it happens like I mean it happens an insane amount of time just during an average day so for me it was just protection of of my own self of my life of like wanting to just kind of relax sometimes and not have to constantly think about who's calling me what and if they're referring to me as what or what bathroom I need to go to. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like having in sort of that um, a consistency, I don't, I don't know if you would consider that a consistency between the inner and the outer self, um, that in itself is a sort of protection because then you don't have to keep explaining that you feel a certain way, but you look a different way. I think, yeah, I might consider it a sort of consistency or like continuity or something. It does feel like a protection of, of not needing to explain to people all the time. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, but for some reason, I kind of chose to explain to people all the time about trans identity anyway. <laughs> so I'm not really sure if I really valued that protection so much as I valued just not being referred to as a specific gender. Oh, um, because apparently, <laughs> with all my poetry being about trans identity and most of my other work being about that too, I... I don't think I really mind talking about like that difference or that like gender identity or the intricacies of it for mm-hmm. me. But I do think I minded when people would refer to me as like, Hey, you're going to the wrong bathroom, go to the girls' bathroom. I'd be like, No thank you. What? <laughs> yeah. I, I I wonder you know, there there are some places that have uh non gendered or a third gender bathroom now. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is so much misogyny in the world that we live in, across the world that we live in, um, yeah. that unfortunately, bathroom worry is a 
not not the one that the the lawmakers use to try to ban you know to to yeah. to force people to use certain bathrooms but right. the underlying fears that they are trying to invoke in order to use that to pass those prejudicial laws so i guess what i wanted to ask you which is a bit of an unfair question is what if the world never cared that you do not look like you feel? Would you still go through physical transition? Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, for me, I think I would. Um, I think that there are a lot of people, a lot of trans people who probably might not. But for me, I definitely would. I find when I was on testosterone, you do a, like a shot weekly. Mm-hmm. And for me, that time of the week was almost a sort of sacred or at least like celebratory occasion. Mm-hmm. So I think I definitely would still do a sort of physical or a medical transition because it just feels right to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even sort of aside from what anyone else says or thinks or does in relation to how I look. I still felt like this is what I particularly wanted. Right, right. And, and that, is, that is what humanizes, right? Is to yeah. actually to put um, what you personally want and to, to take that into account. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there was definitely a time when I was sort of speeding through transition of all sorts, Mm -hmm. where I was definitely kind of doing it for other people. Mm -hmm. But at this point, when I've sort of kind of chilled out, (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of um, come to terms with some more more stuff um, Mm -hmm. within myself, I think I'm at a point where it's like, I just need to do whatever I want to do. Mm -hmm. And so, like, for instance, I haven't legally changed my name yet. Because it costs money, and also because I just haven't found a particularly set name that I'm really convinced in, like a middle name. So I'm just kind of taking, like, allowing myself to to do what I need to do, rather than sort of appease what anyone else thinks should happen. Right, and that's what ultimately what humanizes is that you are having this conversation with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that sort of brings us back to your poem as well, is that consideration of self. How are you living with yourself as a person you are, as a person you were, as a person you will become? Like, in one body, uh, cohabitating. Yeah. Yeah, and for, for me at least, speaking also to the point of like having a humanized version of yourself, of cohabitating with yourself. I'm really interested in the ways that trans narratives often aren't about continuity after transition. Kind of like transition happens, pre-transition self, goodbye to you, see you never, bye. <laughs> but for me, I'm, I'm a lot more interested in the ways that you are a continuous person and you have to sort of or I personally think, and I in my own life want to to integrate and to fully sort of like cohabitate with my pre-transition self because I still think I still want a lot of the things that tiny little kid me wants. Like mm. I still am considering being a mortician. I'm still mm. really into random video games or Legos, mm-hmm. you know, just just random kind of stuff that still is hanging on. Um, and I, and I like that. I think it, it is humanizing. Yeah. And, and that particular part of you, you know, what you like, your tastes and so forth, they, they didn't change. They didn't suddenly come on with, you know, the, the hormone therapies and whatnot. These are things you always liked. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anything really changed from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think, I mean, that sort of goes back to that stereotyping of gender, right? Is that people think, oh, boys do this, girls do that. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In any case, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me, and uh, hopefully, my questions were not too intrusive or awkward. I really, I really loved having this conversation. I, I thought it was really interesting, and I also loved talking about your poem and in relation to my poem. I think you brought up some interesting stuff. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. But before I let you go, I would love for you to tell us, A, if you have any like favorite open mics that you would recommend to people, and B, how we can follow you online, and uh, if you have a website, all those wonderful things. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, open mic kind of stuff. I really like Slam. I don't know how many open mics they're doing right now, but they're a great group. And then defunct, we usually have open mics at our events. Mm -hmm. um, so check out those. They're usually, honestly, my favorite open mics. Um, mm -hmm. And you can find me on Twitter at kweet09. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, just looking up Keegan Wheat. I don't have a website. I'm not super fancy. Um, mm -hmm. But I do post all my stuff on Twitter and Instagram, for sure. <laughs> cool, cool. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was, this was really fun. <laughs> good, good. I'm glad to hear that. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.